Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudhaman from The Homes Report. We're joined today by Neil Backwith. Neil, welcome to The Echo Chamber. Hi, Arun. Good to be here. So I was very keen to talk to you for quite a while because in my meetings with various public relations agencies mm. around the UK, um, you have kind of emerged as a, a sort of common denominator to uh, successfully run PR firms, obviously not all of them, but many <laughs> of the firms that are doing well, especially from a commercial perspective, yeah. have you on board either as a, as a non-exec or, or, or as a consultant. So perhaps we could start by um, if you could tell us a little bit about exactly what you do. I will give it a go. But first of all, let me just say thank you for the compliment. I'm not sure it's strictly true, but um, it, I am very single-minded, I have to say. And, and for the last decade or more, I've really devoted my working life to only one thing, which is to try and get communications firms, PR firms, marketing firms to focus on the other side of their business, which is their commercial performance. Because I think that many, many firms are really good at what they do. They do a fantastic job for their clients, often don't get the plaudits that they deserve for the quality of work that they do, but have never really made the level of profitability that they should or that they deserve. And I have to put my hand up and say, I don't know a lot about PR. I don't know a lot about marketing. I've sort of fell into this business by mistake, by accident. But do you know what? It's the bit that fascinates me is all about the, the business model. Mm -hmm. And if we understand the business model, it's not a difficult business to run. And mm. it's not a difficult business to make profitable. Mm. And... You say you don't know that much about PR or marketing, but of course you did spend 22 years at Countrywide and then you were Porto Novelli, EMEA CEO. Yeah. So you probably know a little bit more than most. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, was, I was being slightly tongue-in-cheek saying that, but not entirely, because a lot of that time was spent running businesses mm. as opposed to running client accounts. So yes, I've done account handling. I've been, I came up through the account handling side, but fundamentally not in PR. I mean, I ran an ad agency for Countrywide for 10 years and then moved into a group managing director role where I was really counting beans and numbers. Mm. So, you know, I'm not a PR person. Mm. Um, yes, I know a bit about strategy and planning and so on because I thoroughly enjoy it. But principally, it's the how do we make this business make money? Mm. That's the bit that really interests me. And as you said, many public relations firms still struggle with this. They're mm. often, I think, led by great account handlers, people who yep. are brilliant at the work, great with clients. Mm. Um, why is it, do you think, that commercial performance is sometimes overlooked at agencies? Well, I think you've just put your finger on it and mm. answered the question, really, which is that the way to get on in, in agency world is by being a great account handler. And if you're a great account handler, as say an account exec, you get promoted and then you get promoted more and eventually you get to the board and eventually you get to be maybe managing director. 
And then you ask yourself, how did I learn how to run a business? And the answer is by absorbing it from the people I worked for when I was on my way up. The problem is that's what they did too. Mm-hmm. And so it never really breaks that cycle. And people still don't know and understand the business model that PR firms really operate to. Mm-hmm. It's often guesswork, mm-hmm. which is a bit scary. Yes, um, a little bit scary. What, what would you say are the secrets to successful commercial performance? You don't need to give away too much, obviously, <laughs> because I'm aware. I'm quite happy giving away anything, but um, I'm not sure it's really a secret. It's, mm. it's about disciplines um, and about proper business management, which really means understanding what it is that ultimately we're charging our clients for mm-hmm. and how we buy that in. Because it's like any business. You buy something, you mark it up, and you sell something. That's pretty much what most businesses do. You add value in the middle. And what we buy is people's time. So we recruit people, and we buy their time from them, and we use that time to deliver great results for our clients. But in the end, what we're really selling is that time. Mm -hmm. And so somehow we have to account for that. And that's really the principles or the basic principle on which I've built everything that I know, which is if you really, really carefully manage the amount of time you're buying and the amount of time you're selling and how much you sell it for, then it's not too difficult to make money. Mm -hmm. The risk, presumably, is that many agencies end up over-servicing. Over-servicing or... I sort of hate those words because mm. it's sort of a bit like it's a bit like putting a sort of nice, cozy, comfortable feel to something which is absolutely awful. Over-servicing, darling, yeah. is what I would call it. You know, oh, we over-service, darling, because that's what we've always done. Well, yeah, yeah except it's not over-servicing. In any other business, it would be called waste or scrap or write-off, and I'd much prefer to call it write-off. It's Mm. time that we've worked, done great work with it probably for the client, but we're not being paid. Mm -hmm. Well, that's wrong. That's fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's not over-servicing for me. It's write-off. Yeah, it's it's almost like an an acceptable way to describe something which should be unacceptable, but presumably is fairly widespread still in the industry. I mean, how hard is it to get agencies away from it and particularly to wean clients off it? It's an interesting question, and it's the question I'm asked probably more often than any. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the answer to it is it's not hard to manage a business to minimize over-servicing. The issue is really not one of the level of service we're giving clients because we should give clients great service. Mm-hmm. And that's how we, we retain business and how we grow and how we win business and so on. Now, the issue is really one of how do we manage the time that we have available and how do we ensure we get paid for that? Mm. Now, what that comes down to in the end is making sure that you have the right level of resource in the business for the level of business we're doing. And often that comes the other way around. And a lot of firms run their business on the, and it's interesting actually, because you could ask a question of most firms and say, tell me how big you are. And the answer they'll give you is probably a number of people. 
And that gives away an awful lot because it sort of says we measure our success by how many people we employ. And I don't know many businesses that do that. Most of them measure their success on the basis of their sales, mm -hmm. how much income we generate. Mm. And that sort of summarizes the problem. Mm. We recruit people first and then try and fill their time second. And it should be the other way around. Right. Okay. Now, how much has, have you seen in terms of business models changing in recent years? Um, because you've been consulting now for PR firms for over a decade. Um, mm -hmm. And particularly in the last few years, I've certainly noticed there's a move from some firms away from time management as the only kind of thing they're selling. Do you see that changing the business model? I think there are lots of changes going mm -hmm. on. But I think there always have been. Mm. I mean, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, to go back 20 years to when every client apparently paid a nice fat retainer to every PR firm and life was easy, except it was never like that. Mm. I mean, those days didn't really exist. It's a nice memory. No, I think the, the truth of it is that it's always been quite a tough business. There's always been some people in the business who operate on the basis of some sort of notion of what it's worth. Mm. So in other words, pricing based on a judgment, which if you are, if there's just one person making those judgments is okay, you can do that. Um, but once you start to have three, four, five or more people having to make those judgments, those pricing judgments, it gets really messy and potentially quite dangerous because clients will see right through that and say, well, how do you justify you know, why £5,000 for this? Mm. What's the basis for that? And if the answer is really because that's what I think you, could, you can afford, then we're on a pretty weak ground. Mm. So I'm not a fan of value-based pricing mm -hmm. because it's almost impossible to judge accurately what the value really is. Mm. So it always, in the end, leads to pain, mm. in my experience. So I like the idea of costing on the basis of time and selling on the basis of market price. But most of the time, those two things will be the same. Mm. So we have a sort of price that we work out, this is what we need to get, and we will make our desired profit at this, this level of price. If there's a justification for why it should be more, fine, charge more. But in the end, we don't need to. Mm. We're not even very good at selling for the price that we should be selling at. Mm. So trying to get more sophisticated than that when we're not even walking very well yet doesn't seem to be a great plan. Mm. Why do you think agencies are, are, are reasonably keen to, to try and move away from time? Um, some of them are keen to sell products, for example. Others are mm. touting payment by results. And, and these are always presented as improvements on yeah. charging for time. Yeah, I, th I think the problem with time is that we, we're we a bit of a strange industry. I mean, professional service firms generally are a bit strange because the client thinks that they're buying some sort of outcome and we think we're selling time. Mm. And I don't know of many businesses where what the company thinks they're selling and what the customer thinks they're buying are different. You know, you go into a shoe shop and you think you're going to buy a pair of shoes, Arun, and I think I'm going to buy a pair of shoes, and they think they're going to sell a pair of shoes. So it's sort of simple. Mm -hmm. 
but not with us. Mm. So the problem here is that we can't really go to a client these days and say, what we're going to give you is 26 hours of time. Because they'll say, well, that's great, but what do I get for that? What are you actually going to do? And so what we have to do is build a bridge. And that bridge needs to be built between how long it takes to do something and what the likely outcome is going to be. And whilst we can't guarantee outcomes, clients are moving more and more and more into that arena where they really want to set the goals in concrete and say, that's what I'm expecting for my money. And it's then up to us to manage our time to deliver those results, if we believe that that's reasonable, in the time that we estimate it will take to do and to make our fees match that, which is a slightly different skill from the old skill because this comes down to managing people to deliver results in a fixed time rather than manage, managing the fee in order to cover the time that's been spent. Mm -hmm. So it has shifted without mm -hmm. question. It's now tougher than it ever was, partly, I think, as a result of uh, procurement and their involvement, mm -hmm. but partly also because the world has become more accountable. Mm. I think every aspect of, of life is more accountable than it used to be. And I think that's probably quite a good thing. Mm. Are you a fan of incentive-based fees, things like payment by results? I mean, what's your view on that kind of thing? Um, I'm a, no, I'm not a fan. Let's mm. say that to begin with. Um, I don't have a problem with it. In principle, I think in principle, it's really quite a good idea. Mm -hmm. The idea that if we do a reasonable job, we get paid a reason reasonably. If we fall short, we earn less. But if we do a great job, we earn more. So as long as there's an equal upside and downside risk, I'm cool with that. But the problem is usually how you measure performance. And often it's very subjective or it's based on some sort of measurables that are largely irrelevant. We want to get four pieces of coverage in these titles. Great. You know, what's that mean? Mm. I mean, I can get you coverage. It's no problem at all. I can get you front page coverage in one of the nationals. All I need to do is burn your factory down, um, set fire to the building. That'll get coverage. Mm. You know, it, so it's not about coverage. But still, we set goals which are based on th measurable things, which we have to do. Mm. So, no, I'm not a fan of it. It usually leads to sort of arguments and not really the basis for a trusting partnership. And fundamentally, the best relationships that you see, the long-standing relationships between clients and agencies, are ones that are built on trust and on a partnership where there's real understanding of what it is that the client's trying to achieve from a business perspective and how the firm that they're working with can help them to achieve that. Mm. Have you seen a shift from retainer towards projects? Mm. And has that had an impact on business models? Can I make a small plea before, before I answer the question, which is about this word retainer? Sure. You see, I have a big problem with the word retainer because mm. I don't know of many firms, if any, who are really, well, I know one or two, who are really paid a retainer because a retainer is something that you're paid to do nothing, just to be there and to be available 24-7 should a client need you. Mm. So we use the word mm. 
but we don't really mean it, mm -hmm. which is so typical of what happens actually in our industry. We use a lot of terminology like that, which doesn't really mean what we want it to say. Mm -hmm. A retainer, you're paid for being there. Well, we're not. We're paid a fee for doing work. So we ought to call it a fee, mm -hmm. contract fees or project fees, mm -hmm. depending on which it is. So I want to kill that word retainer because actually what it does more than anything is it implies a certain um, order or of type of relationship between mm -hmm. the client and the agency. It sort of says you're on a retainer so you'll do whatever it is I ask you to do. Yeah. That's what the retain. Well, it's not true. Mm. We're on a fee. So that's the plea. I've made my plea. But, okay. But to answer the question... I think that there has been a shift. It's been a huge shift. And it's come about, I think, mainly driven by the client side rather than, than the agencies, uh, the consultancies. Um, procurement have pushed things quite heavily in that direction because in times of recession or times when the economy is suffering, procurement have an awful lot of power and marketing have much less and vice versa. Boom times, marketing get much stronger. Um, but as it's, we've been sort of going through some quite difficult times over the last uh, decade almost now, um, I think procurement have become stronger and stronger. What they want is to have as much as they can get for as little commitment as they want, as they can give. So the concept of project-based relationships is really now quite widespread. It's a bit like the zero hours contracts hmm. that we see in employment, which everybody complains about. But that's sort of what happens with PR firms now. You get, you win a piece of business, except you haven't won anything. All you've won is a set of terms and conditions under which projects may or may not be given to you. Absolutely. You're on the roster. You're on the roster. And you've signed a contract, supposedly, but there's no fee in that contract. Well, my understanding of contracts is that unless there is actually a, an agreed um, amount of work and an agreed amount of money, that that isn't a contract. It's just a set of terms and conditions. Mm. So a lot of agencies, I think, have contracts in inverted commas, which aren't contracts mm. at all. But nonetheless, it comes back to, to fixed fees or contracted fees versus projects. And there's no, no one better than the other, provided we do one thing which is to recognize that project-based business for a PR firm or a marketing firm is very much more time-intensive to win than annual contract business. Mm. So with an annual contract client, you pitch and you win and you negotiate and you start. And it then goes on. With a project-based business, frequently you have to put proposals together for every project that mm. you may or may not win. So the amount of non-billable time involved is much higher. And that means the availability of billable time is reduced. Mm. So if there are fewer billable hours available, you have to charge more for each of those hours in order to earn the same amount of money. And that's where a lot of firms go wrong. They're charging the same rates for project work as for contract work. Mm. And if I was a contract client, I'd want to feel I was getting a better deal than just an ad hoc project client. Mm -hmm. So really, we ought to have two sets of rates. Mm -hmm. so. But they are getting a better deal if the project rates are the same as the contract rates. Right? Well, the project clients are getting the, they're right. getting the good deal. Sure, yeah. yeah, but it ought to be the other way around. Mm. 
So you know, I want the contract client to get a better deal because I'm giving you a 12-month contract, mm. which is sort of what you'd expect if you had a contract for, yeah. I don't know, for servicing your boiler mm-hmm. at home. Then you'd expect if you signed a contract with a company that you get a better deal than just phoning up the local mm. plumber and saying, can you come and service my boiler? It doesn't sound like the healthiest state of affairs. Um, how do you advise your firms, the firms that you, you work with, to uh, to deal and negotiate with procurement departments on the client side? Mm. I mean, I'm, I'd love to say I'm a huge expert in negotiating contracts mm-hmm. with procurement. But to be honest, you know, I did a bit of that when I was at Porto Novelli, mm. and I've done a little bit with some of my clients since then. Um, but it's tough. And you can't take away from the fact that it's tough. However, the one thing that without question we must all get better at is being confident. We need to recognize that we're actually pretty good at what we do. Mm. Uh, it's very easy to forget that. You know, we do know what we're doing. Mm. We do know how communications work. We do know how to put programs together which have which produce great results for clients. So we need to enter those discussions with a mind that says we're actually pretty good. Mm. Therefore, we deserve to be properly paid and we're going to be tough about what we are paid and we're going to stick to it. Because the more we give away, and we do, and I see it all the time, people coming back from discussions with clients saying, well, the client said our rates are too high and they've said that you know, they can buy what we're, what we're doing down the road for 10% less, so I've given them 10% off. Well, in many cases, the margin that many firms are making is only 10% or pretty close. So giving 10% off means we don't make any money. Mm. That's not a great way to start a relationship with a client. And actually, it's not about the rates. It's about how effective we are in managing our time. So I think we've got to get tougher, more disciplined, and much, much, much more confident. Mm. Would you say that's the biggest challenge you face when you're advising firms? I think the it's the most common mm. in the sense that I think we all lack confidence. Mm-hmm. It's terribly easy to to feel that we're in a market where it's highly competitive, which it is, and that there's some always someone else down the road who'll do it cheaper. And there is. So how do you deal with that? Well, I have to say I have a pretty glib answer, but I mean it seriously, which is when clients say to me, uh, when my clients say to me, do you know what? I don't know what to do here. Someone else down the road's cheaper and so on. Um, I say, well, if they come in so much cheaper, let them have it. See, I'd like all of my competitors to win every non-profitable account. I don't want those. If they win all of those, they'll go out of business, but we won't. Mm. And that's the approach that we've got to take, which is that it's not about just generating income. It's actually about generating profit. There is no point in having income on which you don't make profit. All you've got to do is do lots lots of work for nothing. Mm. So the point is make profit, not income. And we've been chasing income fees for as long as I've been in this business, mm-hmm. the focus is always on chasing income. And I'd like the focus to be on chasing profit. Mm. So you work with independent firms, I would say, almost exclusively, um, primarily? No, I've done quite a lot of work oh, with other other groups as okay. well. Okay, What would you say is the advantage that 
an independent firm might have in terms of their commercial management compared to a publicly held PR firm? Because that's one of the things we hear most often is the kind of discipline and rigor involved on the publicly held side of the business. Um, but sometimes that seems to stop them from growing because they're so focused on on uh, on, on managing margins every month. Mm. I think the the danger is to getting too uh, bogged down in the administrative side of managing the commercial end of the business. Mm. It's not we don't work in something overly complicated. It's not difficult what we do. It's a pretty simple business where we employ people and we pay them decent salaries and we charge them out to clients and we try to make a margin in doing that. It's not difficult to do. So there's not a huge amount that has to be measured. I think some of the big groups try very hard to um, focus on that, but Mm. they overcomplicate it and they make the lines of reporting very long. And I've experienced that myself. And the the focus is very short term because of quarterly stock market reporting. So you tend to get an overly powerful focus on short term tactical decision making rather than long term strategic decision making. I think with these private firms, then they have the luxury of being able to really think about their strategy and to take a slightly longer-term view. And certainly the firms that I've worked with and continue to work with, you know, one of the first things we always do is look at what their goals are and what the strategy is. Because in the end, they need to understand what they're doing, where they're going. And if you have a really clear idea of what you're trying to achieve, it makes the decisions that you have to take along the way so much easier. Mm-hmm. Now, for some of these firms, of course, selling is a goal. Uh, And there's a lot of acquisition around at the moment. Mm. The last couple of years, obviously, the usual suspects are buying. but We're seeing a lot of private equity money as well. Do you have a view on, um, first of all, the fact that so many agencies are selling? And second, that many are selling to what we could perhaps call non-traditional buyers um, when they come from, for example, the private equity side? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I have a view really on the non-traditional buyers other than mm. that I think it's quite healthy. Mm. Um, I quite like the idea that there's fresh blood and fresh money coming into the industry. Um, quite what the longer term impact of that will be, I'm not sure. Um, I also think it's quite healthy that firms recognize early on in their history what they're doing, you know, whether they're setting up and starting a lifestyle business or building a business that it, that has some real value um, that they can realize. And in the end, I think most PR firms, most communications agencies are built for the same reason. They're built by the initial shareholders and subsequent additional shareholders for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a pattern which repeats itself and has repeated itself through history. And it's how some of the really big groups have been created. Mm -hmm. Uh, The big question, I think, is, is there something substantial there? And I think more than ever, there is something substantial there today. 
in terms of the skills that people have and the talent that we're attracting into the industry. Mm-hmm. I think we're attracting some fantastic talent into the business. Mm-hmm. More investment in training, more investment in people, more investment in marketing. And it's leading to where we are today, which is some very successful businesses. Yeah, and you don't see firms necessarily scaling back on those investments so training and marketing and so on because of macroeconomic concerns? Oh, I think it always goes up and down and economics will always play a part in that. Um, I don't think I see that happening at the moment, at least not yet. Um, it, at times of recession, everyone cuts back. At times of boom, everyone reinvests. You know, it's a cycle. It's an endless one. It continues. I've probably been through four or five of those boom and bust cycles in my career. Um, yeah, it'll go up and down. But I still think that we recognize very, very well that the only assets we have in our business really are people. Mm. And if we don't invest in those people, we will lose them. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap, a cu- couple of last questions for you. It, what would you say your, your, your top piece of advice is for uh, a, 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 someone who's starting their own public relations firm and wants to make sure they get the, the commercial basics right from day one? I think the the one thing to concentrate on is making sure that you don't get carried away with recruiting bright, shiny people when you don't really need them. There is a time and a place for investing in people and it needs to be linked to your strategic development of the business. But fundamentally, win the business first and resource it after. Mm. And finally, I don't know if you if you can or will answer this, but some firms that you think are well run from a commercial perspective. You can include your own clients. <laughs> oh, I think there are a, num- a number of them. Um, I think, in fact, there are many, uh, many more than there used to be. I think mm-hmm. it would be probably wrong of me to pick out <laughs> the clients that I work with. Um, but there are one or two. Mm. Um, and I think the answer to my question is that the industry is a lot better run than it used to be. Yeah, It's getting better all the time. Profitability is improving. I mean, I've seen over the period that I've been doing this, I've seen over-servicing levels. There you go. You see, I use the word myself, but <laughs> over-servicing levels falling mm. and profitability levels rising. That can only be a good thing. Mm. Okay, excellent. Well, Neil, thank you so much um, for your time today, uh, which I'm aware is quite valuable. So, <laughs> You're uh, very welcome. And we'd love to have you back uh, on the Echo Chamber show at some point in the not-too-distant future. Thank you. Take care. Okay, welcome back to the Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudham, and I'm joined now by Chad Latz, who is the global president of the Digital Innovation Group at Conan Wolf, Chad, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Arun. So I last saw you, I think it was, was it two weeks ago? Yeah, glass More of rosé in hand, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> it was early. We were, well, we were actually, so we were in Cannes, but it was the morning of the 24th for, um, for our non-EU listeners. This was a, a particularly significant date. We were in a, a post-Brexit days. Yeah, that morning I think uh, we were reeling. <laughs> For sure, uh, we've moved on now. We've moved from denial to anger, but um, <laughs> but we won't talk about Brexit today. We'll leave that. For another time, I wanted to actually talk to you about some of the trends you saw coming out of Cannes. I recall when we last spoke, you you 
made the observation to me that you thought you found can more useful from a technological perspective、mm. than South by Southwest, which、yeah. in some quarters would be viewed as a controversial opinion. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because I think you know, having done South by Southwest just three months prior, and you think about the major、uh, events that happen、uh, for our industry. You know, South by Southwest was a lot of about what was happening in the technology space, new applications, and that sort of thing. But I found that the level of dialogue at Cannes was、uh, quite a lot richer. And what was so nice was to see some of these technologies then applied for creative purposes. So in my mind, it was like a really lovely、uh, combination of programming. It wasn't just all about sort of technology and technology trends. It wasn't、uh, you know oversaturation on on sort of brand、um, messaging. But it was it was. It was the ability to actually see a lot of these technologies and thinking applied to some of the creative、mm. work. So it was like for me that a really nice balance of, of of technology and innovation and sort of forward thinking、um, with what、uh, the industry had been doing in the three months fo- following South、mm-hmm. by Southwest, which was interesting. So it was perhaps a little less. Futuristic and a bit more tangible. Yeah, yeah. No, while, while still being futuristic, you know, some of the things that you know that were highlighted at Cannes this year have been an ongoing dialogue now、mm-hmm. for some time. You know, things like virtual reality, you know, has been you know part of the part of our vernacular in the marketing space now for a couple of years.、Mm-hmm. Set to be, you know, was set to be a big trend coming into 2016. What was really interesting was to sort of see how the conversation around VR is is evolving, and also to see some examples of how brands were applying it. A couple of、uh, really interesting examples that you know that were noteworthy at Cannes、uh, this this year was uh, the uh, museum, the Dali Museum、mm-hmm. piece that was you know that won some awards, you know, to really kind of give that immersive experience. Uh, you know, a, a lot of activations then set up at Cannes. You know, that's、uh, one that Samsung had put together. There was、mm-hmm. the one, the、uh, the school bus to Mars activation for Lockheed Martin. So it was interesting to see it applied in in greater detail、um, to 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 clients and brands. One of the other things, however, from a、uh, a trend perspective, that it that was new. You know, at Cannes, that really hadn't been discussed much at South by Southwest was. You know how virtual reality experiences impact the brain,、mm. and how we recall experiences, and what will the role of brands be、uh, in that. So I thought that that was particularly intriguing. If you think about the type of content, the types of content that we're going to be creating, if now all of a sudden you're recalling those experiences more as experiences rather than as visual stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, it begs some really interesting and thought-provoking questions. So, you know, there were a lot of sort of deeper. There was a lot of deeper thought,、uh, a lot of deeper thought about the the VR trend、mm-hmm. uh, fr- framed up there. You know, this shift now from the Internet of Information to the Internet of, of Experiences, and the、mm-hmm. speculation that VR will now not just be an experience; it'll be an operating system against which data and、uh, engagement will be driven.、Mm. And as someone who's kind of tasked with thinking about these types of digital innovations and deploying them on behalf of clients, I mean, one of the concerns I hear most often is that things like virtual reality, augmented reality, are interesting and nice, but are they really going to become embedded into the fabric 
of brand communication and storytelling? I mean, what are your views there? It's an interesting it's an interesting question. I would say probably weekly we're having conversations with clients about how we bring VR experiences into their programs. And I, I really see it breaking out into three sort of main categories or main facets. There'll be sort of the brand journalism or, or the journalism that's created um, on behalf of the, uh, the stories that we're pitching maybe to, um, to, to media outlets. Uh, there'll be the live VR experiences. So how, do we, how does a brand, how is a brand responsible for creating a, a, a live VR experience for, um, for consumers? And then there'll be the, 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 the more immersive experiences that we're seeing. So sort of three, three trends of VR and its application. And, you know, right now I would say we're very much in the immersive experience. You know, it's something that, you know, the technology, you know, proving out what the technology can do. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you if you saw the uh, the Samsung activation at Cannes, you know, you you sat in the chair, you put on the headset, and you had the sensation of being on a roller coaster. You know, mm-hmm. isn't this technology cool? But what brands are going to need to be able to do going forward is thinking about storytelling in four dimensions. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where from whatever vantage point the viewer happens to be looking at, and that's a, a really unique type of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So we're 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 still at the or I think still very much at the early phases of that. You know, mm-hmm. people are. People are certainly thinking about how to create immersive experiences, but you know, thinking about creating a, a four-dimensional story is a whole mm-hmm. other approach. Um, but as you said, it's something you're hearing from clients about on a weekly basis, something you're That's discussing right. with them. Do you feel this is something that public relations agencies are well-placed to, to work on, or do you think that maybe you know, ad or digital agencies perhaps have a greater facility with the technology involved? You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's going to probably at the end of the day be uh, an integrated play. I mean, I'm, I'm here to say that I think we are typically um, better custodians of clients' brands and the stories that they tell. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think our, our heritage in terms of, of telling brand stories and brand storytelling you know, position, positions us well. We'll have to adapt to this new way of telling a narrative mm-hmm. in four dimensions, which will be, you know, a, an interesting challenge that will face us, but also the rest of the the industry, and it seems like also a lot of these activations around VR sort of come with a media component as well. So you know, it's a so it's sometimes a big, simple, creative idea mm. that also becomes media worthy. So you know, whether whether um, PR agencies categorically are delivering all of our, all aspects of the technology solution may may still be uh, may still remain to be seen, but I think we've got a, a very dominant role to play in the format for sure. Mm. Interesting. Um, and moving beyond some of the trends you saw in Cannes, what, what, from a technology perspective, I mean, what else is occupying your time at the moment? Obviously, we're seeing a lot of changes uh, as, as ever in terms of the social platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how important are they to the kind of day-to-day work that you do? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, social platforms and activation across social channels is, uh, is core to, to what we're deal- dealing with and delivering for our our clients across the board, and you know, as you mentioned, quite frequently there are changes to different aspects of the platforms and their their features and functionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think we, you know, uh, with live you know live video hit hard um, back in May, uh, April and May, uh, I believe it was. You know, YouTube went forward with uh, 360 as mm-hmm. uh, as mainstream at Coachella. 
and uh, and then live is, is 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 big now. So you know it's interesting because I think live live streaming, just generally speaking, as a format, is not anything new. Mm. I think probably those of us who've been in the digital space for a while remember, you know, platforms like UStream, and mm-hmm. then of course you know we we yeah. saw Meerkat rise and fall almost mm-hmm. instantaneously. Yep. Uh, we're, we are seeing a lot of interest from clients and brands on utilizing Facebook Live as a format for real-time engagement, whether it's in the context of press conferences or other sort of live mm-hmm. brand experiences. So, you know, I think, you know, the day-to-day social is very much a, a, a very, you know, it's dominant part of everything that we're doing from a programming uh, perspective. And it's funny you mentioned Facebook because obviously the, the, the two the two things that came out last year, Meerkat and Periscope, were... But now it's Facebook Live Video. Yeah. Clearly, is is the destination, and that was really apparent at Cannes too, right? I yeah. mean, Facebook and Google uh, dominating a week that not that long ago um, was perhaps not so uh, well acquainted with with the digital side of things, and, and these companies are, on the one hand, obviously friends, but also big rivals mm. to to many of the the media platforms, and of course, the, the that whole advertising ecosystem. That's true. How do you see the influence of Facebook um, in terms of the work that you're doing? Because it does sometimes feel like we're just living in a Facebook world now, you know, with content platforms and so so forth. Everything seems to to feed into Facebook one way or another. Yeah, you know, it's it, it, there's sort, sort of some interesting things that that you know I've been thinking about a lot lately, as it relates to the the way that we experience content on on Facebook. You know, there's been some, some new, uh, you know, you probably saw on the video side of things the idea that 50 percent of of viewers on Facebook watch their consume their video without audio. So mm. you, know, well, that, you see subtitles. That's, now ex- a lot, that's right? exactly right. And you yeah. have you know two to three seconds in this in this sort of the action of the scroll to capture the consumer's attention. So mm. you know the the way that that format is changing is is, is really interesting. You know, another thing that's gotten a lot of topic of has been a hot topic of conversation lately too is you know this phenomenon of you know how uh, data and content is served to the consumer. So you know the notion of the optimization for the clicks. You know we've mm-hmm. all we've all had the experience of having the same five stories shared over and over again amongst mm-hmm. our social network, and everybody yeah. seems to be looking at the exact same thing yeah. at the same time. And there's a big there's a big uh, there's a big debate going on right now inside of our industry about you know what does the optimi- optimization for clicks, the optimization of content for clicks or the algorithm really mean for editorial content and having that you know stories that should be seen seen. Mm. If all of the media outlets and the social outlets are thinking about serving content to consumers mm. relative to you know what's getting the most clicks or shares, right? You know, will brand stories or important stories that need to be told actually be seen? Yeah, I think it's a you know it's a fascinating challenge that our industry is facing, and in particular, you know, you, you, I'm using Facebook as a proxy, but you could say this about really any any media outlet. Yeah. I think it's more apparent with Facebook, though, right? Yeah. And what you're talking about is Facebook basically playing that editorial role. That's right. I mean, and they, they are very keen to say that, that they, they don't. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is, is in service to the algorithm. Yeah. But maybe they should. Well, you know, I, I think uh, somebody had said, uh, you know, that there are 100,000 different data points that are taken into consideration uh, when evaluating an individual user and, and at any time 1,500... <laughs> I think the the number was 
1,500 individual pieces of content could be served to you right. at any time in feed. But I still get the same one that you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. You know, you know, not, yeah. As you as you mentioned before about Brexit, it's oh. sort of it's sort of like a, you mm-hmm. know a, a, an example of how I use this or have how I've talked about this before is that. You know, nobody thought it was going to happen because everybody in my t- Twitter community are, are reading uh, the same stuff. Yeah, whatever. You know, we're all sharing the same stuff. So. Well, yeah, and th- I mean, there is a serious point here, right? We don't. The, the risk is that we have less access to opposing views, and we end up in an yeah. echo chamber. That's right. Um, <laughs> where we're just hearing views that reinforce whatever we think. I mean, do you think that Facebook should? take on maybe more of an editorial role? Maybe, you know, uh, the way that a, a, a traditional broadsheet newspaper would, would function once upon a time? It might be, it might be interesting to see if uh, there was a dimension of that that, was a, that ended up being a little bit more, cur- a little bit more curated. Mm. Um, you know, certainly, certainly other social platforms like YouTube and Vimeo on the video side have taken sort of a, brand, uh, a role in helping brands publish content and tell mm-hmm. stories. Um, it might be interesting if you know Facebook uh, had a sort of an offering or some thoughts in that direction too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's it's yeah, it's 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 interesting. I think the you know that concern about losing the editorial eye or the loss of the editorial eye is a it's a big deal. And and you know, those of us in the PR space are also we can be a little bit guilty of this too. You know, what's the trending topic on social media? What's the mm-hmm. what's the sort of flashpoint in terms of in terms of pop culture and how do we draft mm. in on that, you know, so. Yeah, what's a, the Oreo what's moment? A, exactly. Yeah. It's a it's a phenomenon that I call. It's not keeping up with the Kardashians. It's cutting through the Kardashians, you know. <laughs> it's like, how do you do that? Yeah. Um, you know, brands want to be relevant, of course, to pop culture. But, right. you know, are we, do we then find ourselves guilty of some of the same things yeah, that are. end up being derivative. Sure. Um, it's a tough one because obviously you want to drive the conversation, but I guess that's different to just following it. Mm. So coming back to Can, um, beyond kind of the virtual reality and, and AR trends we've talked about, what else interested you in terms of the, the, the learnings from this year's festival? Mm. We, you know, we also saw a lot of really interesting applications on the artificial intelligence side of mm. things, okay. which I think is it's interesting. You know, we, we talked a little bit about social platforms and of course, you know, AI, a lot of the, a lot of the brands are developing very, very robust um, AI, AI platforms that are fueling a lot of what's happening on on uh, on social as well. Mm. So you know, one of the, you know a couple really interesting activations that we saw on the artificial intelligence side of things. I think both of which, um, or one of which was a, a, a winner, was uh, you know, a platform called Juke Deck, mm-hmm. which uh, I don't, if you're not familiar with it, it's a, it's a, an application that basically com- composes original music. Um, that, that nobody's ever heard before just based on simple parameters that, that a user gives it. So I want a piece of music that's, you know, 15 seconds long that evokes this kind of emotion in somebody and, you know, maybe it might feature one or, an, or another kind of instrument. And, you know, the, the algorithm composes a, an original piece of music designed to elicit that kind of emotional reaction oh from God, the listener. That's, that sounds terrifying. It's, it's, really, it's really, really amazing. And, you know, the speculation, of course, is that everything that we're doing online, whether it's a search or whether it's clicking on various links and content, is generating the intelligence of these AI systems. Um, there was also the release wow. of that. You, I don't know if you saw the video. The music video that uh, was produ- that was produced, I think Sachi produced it. It's called Eclipse, and mm. the entire piece of of, uh, of content, start to finish, 
was mm-hmm. driven through AI. So, you know, I, I think, again, sort of early days in terms of the marketing application of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a lot, you know, we were talking, you know, there's a lot of big focus again around improving, <laughs> improving the creative output of agencies. And the dialogue historically had been, is data killing, you know, mm-hmm. our killing creative, that whole sort of madman versus mathman mm-hmm. um, dialogue. But now there's the discussion about, well, will, will AI can... Does AI enhance or does it does it kill creativity? Mm-hmm. How do you train a system to to um, entertain things like whimsy and the things that happen through the creative discovery process? It was really to your point a bit scary and a bit mm-hmm. exciting all at the same time. What are the implications do you think for your business from AI? I mean, do you see a time when um, you know you're going to have robots working for you instead of? Uh... People, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I'd go that. I don't know that I'd go that far. But I do think we will. We will be using artificial intelligence to to read the expressions and the emotional reactions of people and use that as a mechanism for serving up subsequent content. Okay. So if you think about it from the vantage point of like you know, a couple of couple of us sitting in front of our computers and we've got a a computer that can hear my voice and mm. and, ex- and see my facial expressions and my micro expressions. You know, right now, platforms are already serving you content based on your behavior. Mm-hmm. So this sort of takes it to the nth degree. It's a, obviously a quite a bit future focused, but yeah. I, I don't think it's that far off. That's a brave new world. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. You might have some problems in less expressive cultures, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, it's yeah. almost like the issues you have with trying to monitor social media and yeah. then coming up against the you know, tone and sarcasm and so on. Cultural um, nuances, yeah, but definitely interesting. I mean, is that something that you're you're seeing brand interest in? You know, I I think um, the examples where we saw it exercised this year, you know, I think that there's the there's the novelty factor that are ca- that's capturing people's attention. So everybody, mm-hmm. of course, wants to be a first. They, you know, they want a first. Um, I'm, I'm not seeing a tremendous amount of. You know, I haven't I haven't had. Uh, Clients come to me and say, "Hey, Chad, uh, what's our AI strategy?" You know, it is the same way that it's going to happen. Yeah, it might happen. So, you know, some clients will, you know, every time a new social platform's list, you know, launches, "Hey, what's our peach strategy?" When, you know, oh, oh peach, yeah, yes. So, mm. um, but you know, the other thing that I saw that was also kind of interesting too is the the um, the interest and the resource going behind uh, companies. Uh, Developing, you know, on the uh, I would I would call it the industrial engineering side or industrial mm. design side of things. You know, thinking about the entire ecosystem that can be created and platforms that could be created. So, you know, there was some really interesting venture activity. Um, you know, Dentsu Ventures is doing some really interesting. We saw it do some really interesting things. They had some session at. Uh, at Cannes, where they, you know, of course, they talked about Jibo, their social robot that they've been, mm-hmm. you know, instrumental in, in funding. And then they talked about Q, this whole ecosystem of, of health data uh, overlaid with, you know, access to, to goods and services that then tie back into that health data. So a lot of, you know, I think, I think you know, the opportunity for, for, for those of us in the communications marketing space is to, is to start to think about how those physical and digital worlds converge Mm. And how do we create, on the PR side, how do we create media opportunities from mm. those? What are the big ideas? Uh, you know, I would say, you know, every single, I, you know, at the at the award ceremonies, the judges, you know, the, the lead judge would get up and talk about the challenges 
of judging the category. Mm. And oftentimes, you know, they were sort of referencing the same thing, you know, like digital is now an underpinning of every single activation that we're seeing on behalf of brands. So, you know, there are multiple categories to be entered in, of, of course. And, you know, how do you judge a, a cyber category when everything, in fact, is digital? And I think two years ago, we saw data come on the scene. And mm-hmm. digital and data are now sort of you know, impacting every single category in the awards. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when the entire world becomes digital, then how do, you, yeah. how do you start to judge these categories? Well, yes. I don't want to get into too much of a discussion about uh, the Canlines categories sure. because I think there's probably a good reason why they have hmm. um, so many categories, yeah. um, good commercial reasons for yeah. all of that. But uh, I certainly take your point. I mean, I guess this is something that, that has been predicted for a while, we get to a point where everything is digital, you That's know, right. whether it's outdoor, whether it's radio, whether it's TV, it's all digital one way or another. And of course, because of that, it opens up a, a, a ton of opportunities, uh, as you've just described. Um, so I think before we wrap, one last question, actually, coming back to the Facebook mm. discussion. All of these changes, how difficult is it making it for brands in terms of using Facebook as a storytelling platform? Do we do you just accept now that it's a, it's a paid media platform? Is that what it is? I think so. It, it's an excellent it's an excellent question, and uh, and I think you know we feel that you know we would generally not recommend a, a Facebook activation that wasn't supported in some capacity by a paid program. I mean, we, you know, we're thinking very much from an integrated standpoint across paid or shared owned media. Uh, you know, there's statistics about, you know, you, you can attract an audience to, to Facebook initially, get people to like your page, but the frequency by which consumers actually return to those brand pages are, are it's a, you know, it can be a bit of a diminishing return. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is where, you know, elements like really ex- excellent content really become a really important thing. Uh, putting a little bit of paid media behind it to boost amplification and initial visibility to begin the social sharing. And once that starts to take effect, you know, you'll start to see more of that content in feed. But, you know, um, and, and of course, as you know, from a demographic standpoint, you know, it's it's you know, there's more people now gravitating younger people, Gen, Gen, uh, Gen Z and millennials gravitating towards Instagram and other platforms, too. So, you know, there's growth among uh, an older demographic a transition out of the platform for a younger demographic. Mm. Um, it's still a very, very, very viable way to activate an audience. Though yeah. to your to your specific question, right? You know, pay, you know, paid media element to that is always important. Sub, you know, uh, in conjunction with really powerful, powerful content mm. that's worth sharing. And I mean, Snapchat was very popular as well mm. at Cannes. I mean, it's obviously it's very popular in general. They apparently took a little house behind a gate. No one actually knew it was a Snapchat house. It was just along from the Palais. I don't know if you saw it. I may have missed it. Yeah, yeah, they took... I I remember walking past it and thinking, I wonder what that house is. And apparently, if you look very closely, the Snapchat logo was on the gate. Mm. But it was a pop-up house. Mm. It was just there for the week, and then it disappeared. Did you Um, venture into the house? No, there was a gate. (laughs) And uh, obviously, I was not invited into the Snapchat house. I don't think I'm their target demographic, perhaps. But that must be something that you're seeing more and more in the the work you're doing. What are the the advantages it brings you? 
You know, I, I think I think the whole uh, phenomenon of ephemeral marketing is definitely attract is really attractive to brands and to that young, younger demographic. So mm. you know, whether it's you know doing specific campaigns, we're we're doing also a lot of geo filters on activations like live event activations that we're doing for clients. Um, you know, I think it's it's going to continue to trend upward with you know our you know the Generation Z net uh, net gen for for, for certain. Mm. Uh, and we're not going to see quite quite as much adoption among people that fall into maybe our category. <laughs> um, but you know, we're we're definitely working with a lot more clients to develop strategies for that platform specifically. Mm. You know, and I think that on the commercial side of the business, you know, they've gotten, you know, they've, they're, they're putting a uh, bit more focus on how to monetize that. I think when we ha- were having conversations with them uh, about a year ago, you know, they were still trying to work through some of those um, aspects of their program and uh, being a lot, being quite selective about which brands they were partnering with on different activations. And so mm-hmm. we're seeing them be a, a quite a bit more aggressive on that front now. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Chad, thank you so much um, for coming in today. I think you're on a, a long trip, um, <laughs> so safe travels. Uh, you've had, you've spent the Fourth of July in the UK. I did indeed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, my apologies on, <laughs> on behalf of the country, but have a safe trip back to the US. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Arun. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers. 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 